Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. and freedom will be defended. On the night of the 1st of June 2001, former Nepalese police officer Durga Kunwa had been given the evening off by the king to celebrate his birthday at home with his family. Later that evening, Durga was contacted and advised of the assassination of 10 members of the Nepalese royal family, including his principal, the king of Nepal. This incident would bring Durga's world to a crashing halt and the next time Durga would see the king would be whilst he was guarding his body, lying in state. In this episode of Protect and Serve, Durga Kunwa talks us through the moment he learnt of the king's death and what might have been if he was with him that evening. All this and more next on Protect and Serve. And during your period as the ADC and as the close protection officer to the King of Nepal between 2000 and 2003, that was obviously during um, a, a period which was history-changing event for Nepal in terms of the uh, horrific and infamous royal massacre of the uh, Narahitni Royal Palace when that occurred. This week's big story, Nepal, a country shaken, shocked and in turmoil by the massacre of its royal family. If Nepal's royal family is to be believed, 30-year-old Dipendra, then crown prince, had in one cruel stroke eliminated the king, the queen, his younger brother and at least seven other members of his own family. 
Can you talk us through that event and what that what what occurred during that period? Uh, yeah, Oliver. Unfortunately, you know, uh, you know, the dream that I carried, you know, when I was selected as an ADC, you know, was I was so happy that I would be serving uh, His Majesty King and Her Majesty King and the royal uh, royal family, you know. And then I I do remember I uh, vividly that my training was over in April 15, uh, 2001. I do I do remember that. Uh, and after the training, you have got a shadow period of one month where the outgoing officer would train you. So you you are attached uh, with the outgoing officers throughout a month so that you can learn what are your roles and responsibilities and how should you carry your your expected job. So it was from April 15 to May 15 or or at the end of, uh, yeah, May, May 15, something like that. So uh, even before I could resume my full-fledged uh, you know, uniform duty as an ADC. Unfortunately, the one of the uh, brutal incident uh, in the whole history of Nepal happened. The royal massacre. That was I, I remember that was June first, two thousand one. Uh, uh, I don't know how to how to quote it or how to say it. Uh, June first is my birthday, Oliver. Oh, if wow. I had not been, if I if 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 June first had not been my birthday, I would be on my detail. Trust me. I mean, uh, uh, so. Uh, my family, you know, after that incident, my family says, you're lucky enough, you know, if you had been duty, you never know, you know, you might have been killed. Uh, we are so lucky to have you back. Uh, but uh, deep down, uh, you know, when I go back to my own concise, uh, you know, I would rather had prefer, you know, to be on duty rather than not to be. Uh, mm. Who knows, you know, I, I might have changed uh, the whole course of history. Uh, I mean, you never know. And the king was very popular. Trust me. I mean, that was one of the turning point why the whole monarchy was abolished in after uh, after four or five years so that was the ultimate aim of the Maoist. you see so if you go back uh, to the different period of the history uh, and if you have to pick one date uh, or choose one date which was the turning point uh, where the communists uh, were, were able to overthrow uh, the royal palace i would say it was that incident which actually played a crucial role uh, in, in, in accomplishing their political goal. Uh, yeah, so that was one of the most unfortunate incidents that, that ever happened to me. You know, even before I could give my own uh, own service to the king, you know, I was actually on my first full-fledged duty was to protect his uh, dead body uh, in the hospital. Are you able to tell people that aren't familiar with that particular date in that event what actually happened? Uh, um well, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's there in the news. I mean, uh, uh, that that it was the crown prince who was actually involved uh, in 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 killing uh, uh, the ten members of the royal family, including uh, the sitting king and queen. Uh, uh, the most of the people they still don't believe it. Uh, you know, they are really, really? skeptical. Yeah, they they are really skeptical to accept that fact. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, how can a, a, a crown prince can kill? Uh, his own father and mother who were who were king and queen of nepal so he's still the people i mean if you go back to to nepal and if you try to dig out uh you know this thing uh you know you would be entering into one of the very contested issue uh where you might come across a lot of conflicting uh you know uh, you know uh, 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 things or narratives uh, so yeah but for me i mean i mean uh, i mean i know the personal uh, you know the face of the crown prince as well. The most of the people they make their own assumptions on the base of the public figure. You see, which he was, and he was also very popular as well. Uh, but you know, since we were the ADC in the royal palace, so we exactly knew what was his personality. Uh, so I don't claim because I was not there that he was the one. 
but I don't see any other reason why he did not. Uh, uh, you know, because I went to the to the to the crime scene. Uh, you know, before it was demolished. Uh, you know, I saw all the carnage. Uh, you know, I, I I went to his personal bedroom. You know, so when I when I try to uh, correlate all those things and. Uh, uh, when I come to the real scenario, what exactly happened that actually corroborates, uh, you know, what had actually happened on that evening on Friday. So that day, as you say, was your birthday. And if it hadn't been your birthday, you would likely have been on detail there supporting His Majesty the King in Nepal. Um, and you, and you, you said just a few moments ago that that you were charged with the responsibility of guarding the King's body in the hospital. What was What was that experience like for you? That must have been quite a poignant moment one you'll probably never forget absolutely oliver the you know that was that was one of the most somber uh, you know incident in my entire life uh, uh you know that was we are trained for you know actually we are trained to react as quickly as possible so that we can protect the principal and mm -hmm. my principal would have been been been, been the king absolutely yes uh but uh, Oliver, the one thing that we have also also uh, you know take notice of is that you know uh, we are talking about the king, which belongs to the Hindu culture. So we take king as an incarnation of the god, number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, and that meeting uh, the day when the incident happened was actually a family gathering. So every Friday, every other Friday, the king used to to invite all the family members, his kith and kin, so that they can have a chit chat over over the drink. Uh, you know, uh, you know this kind, of, and that was the time when uh, uh, you know Crown Prince was supposedly in love, you know, with uh, you know with one of the uh, you know one of his 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 uh, his uh, you know fiance or something like that. So, if I had been over there, you know, I would have done what I am trained for. You know, I was supposed to protect the king, no matter who you know where the threat is coming from or or who is emanating the threat. You know, so that's what I'm saying. You know, by the time you realized, you know, I might have drawn my gun. You know, and you know, I might have shot. You know, you know, you know, the person who is trying to target. You know, the king who was my principal. You know, that was the first thing that actually came to my mind, and that was one of the reasons why my family were very happy when when they came to know that I was not over there. I was off duty. Uh, and all of a sudden, next day, when I had to go to the military hospital uh, and provide, you know, uh, uh, you know, security to his cops, I mean, that was, you know, the situation I had never dreamed in my entire life. You know, especially right. when you had barely joined as a fresh ADC to serve His Majesty King, and then all of a sudden, next day, overnight, you are guarding his dead body. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, uh, that is that is something which is which was completely beyond, uh, you know, my imagination, Oliver, completely beyond my imagination. What happened with the Crown Prince after that situation was was I'm assuming there was a was there such a thing as a large investigation to get to the bottom of it? How was that all dealt with? Oh, he shot himself. Uh, so after that, that that incarnage, uh, you know, then, you know, you know, he shot himself. And uh, and then after four or five days, he went into the comatose and after four or five days, uh, I mean, he died as well. Uh, uh, so so this is this is why, uh, you know, the most of people even now today, you know, they, they, they actually believe, you know, there is a huge conspiracy uh, behind this entire royal massacre. Uh, they can't believe, you know, the royal, the crown prince was involved killing his own father who apparently happened to be king and then he killed himself. So... So basically, they don't see any reason at all why why he would be killing himself if he wanted to, you know, you know, you know, get rid of his own father and mother. So so this is something which is which is something, 
incomprehensible for most of the people back in Nepal, which actually, uh, you know, gives a lot of, uh, uh, you know, I would say, uh, fuel and water for the conspiracy theory. And, and this is one of the reasons why almost all the people have got different narratives about that. Is this was this the catalyst to you joining the armed police force in two thousand and two? Because shortly thereafter, that's the transition you made. Yeah, I mean, I was still in the royal palace, uh, you know, and uh, I must say, uh, Oliver, that was one of the reasons. The royal massacre was one of the reasons why I wanted to change my profession entirely. You know, um, remember I told you the Maoist conflict was on its culmination point. And the Nepal police was understaffed, uh, underarm. You know they were not at all prepared. You know to fight against the Maoists. You know I mean the the, the normal police officers are not trained for that. Uh, mm. uh, and and basically the Maoists were getting more 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 uh, you know uh, kind of uh, consolidated. And and they were actually all over Nepal now. So the government of Nepal they decided to create uh, a paramilitary force. Uh, you know drawing some of the officers from the military and some of the officers from the Nepal police. Uh, it was voluntary though. Uh, and that was one of the incidents that happened in Royal Palace. You know, actually, I went as a law enforcement officer from the Nepal police, and that incident happened uh, that actually de-alienated me not to continue with my job with the, uh, you know, with the Nepal police. And I know once I get out from the uh, ADC, uh, I have to go back, uh, you know, uh, to fight against the the insurgent or the terrorist. You know, they were declared terrorists now then. Um, so that was also one of the reasons why I decided to go to the armed police force, uh, you know, when I was still in the royal palace, uh, uh, you know, and, and and it was just a royal palace. There were no royalty at all. Uh, it was just an empty whole palace, just like, uh, you know, the, the, the palace of UK. So a huge, huge palace, mm. but nobody living over there. So we were just, you know, guarding a, a, a empty building. Uh, so those all kind of things, you know, that I went through actually, uh, you know, made me to 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 go to the armed police force, uh, uh, you know, after that incident in, in 2003 or 2004. And what's the major difference between the Nepalese police in your previous role and the armed forces police? What's the difference between the two of those? Uh, there is a huge difference, uh, Oliver, the... The Nepalese police is responsible for the policing job. So they are the one actually who who control the crime and who are responsible for the investigation for all the homicide and all this kind of things. So basically, they are the, the law enforcement agency, exactly the normal police do. Uh, whereas the armed police force is, is actually they assist, you know, the local police in the event of disaster, in the event of crowd control, in the event of, uh, you know, uh, you know, when the situation goes back to worse, you know, when they need some kind of support. Uh, uh, so, so armed police force was actually in between the Nepal army and the Nepal police. You know, I mean, you cannot deploy the Nepalese military unless you declare the state of emergency, and there would be a lot of hue and cry if you deploy if you deploy the military against your own people. So that will draw a lot of international play. And the Maoist conflict was exactly going out of the control of the Nepal police, so they cannot control it. So they need some kind of middle of the road policy. So the mm. government of Nepal they decided to come out. With the special forces, they can draw some arms, some 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 guys from the Nepal police, some from the military, and so that they can deploy, you know, that force to fight against the Maoist terrorists. So, so that was the ultimate short-term goal of of the uh, the Nepalese government to establish the armed police force then. And it was established in two thousand and one. And whenever you establish a new unit of any sort of description and size and scale, it comes with a number of challenges. What was the greatest challenges that faced the um, armed forces police in Nepal in terms of this new group of men and women coming together to to, to support the country? 
Yeah, I mean, it was established in 2001 through the ordinance, and then in 2002, uh, if I if I remember correctly, they came out of the Armed Police Force Act, and that's how formally the Armed Police Force was established. And as I said before, uh, the, some of the officers were drawn from the police, and some of them came from the military. Actually, only one percent or 1.5 uh, of the total strength they come from the military. They were expecting more from the military because this was the job that Armed Police Force was supposed to do was more of a militarized kind of thing. You know, they have to immediately after the establishment, they have to go to fight against the Maoist insurgency. You know, they would get a better weapon than the Nepal police. They would be undergo for the the conversion training, and as soon as they are done with the training, they have to go to the fight against the Maoist communists. So that was the ultimate aim. Now, remember, we were not hiring the new people. So we were actually actually inviting the people from the Nepal police. So most of the officers, they came from the Nepal police, were not actually prepared to fight against the Maoists, you know, because most of the people who came in in armed police force, it was a voluntary job first, uh, but most of the people, they didn't prefer to come to the armed police force because they knew the day when they are enlisted, they have to go to fight. And when you go to the fight against the Maoist insurgency, you never know. You know the chances of dying is more than chances of of, of surviving. Uh, wow. So you, yeah. So you were compressed, you know, into the combat role. Uh, and I knew I had no choice at, at all. Even if uh, you know, after finishing my own tenure as a police officer, you know, I knew down the line I had to go again because I was trained on that on the special police. You know, I knew that I have to go back. Uh, you know, if I go back to the Nepal police, I have to fight against the Maoists. But then I chose the better way because when they raised the armed police force, they gave a better weapon system, you know, and at least uh, you have more people uh, with you, you know. So so, so that was one of the ultimate reasons why I chose, okay, you know, if I die, you know, you know, I, I better die fighting, you know, instead of surrendering, you know, with the lack of people and resources. Uh, yeah, initially it was a lot of challenging, uh, uh, you, know, you know, especially when you have all the officers drawn from the uh, Nepal police and the Nepal army uh, with the initial hiccup. I mean, yeah, I mean, but unfortunately, uh, uh, the Maoist, uh, you know, when, when, uh, uh, when uh, uh, they, 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 they were fighting against the military. They actually, they, they actually attacked some of the military post as well, and they overran one whole battalion. Oh and my imagine goodness! That all were, yeah, they overran wow. the one, yeah, one whole battalion of the Royal Nepalese Army as well, and that was the triggering point when the Royal Nepalese Army was also involved in the Maoist conflict. But before that, all the brunt was taken by the armed police force. It's being called one of the most lethal attacks ever by Maoist rebels. The security personnel included paramilitary officers from the Central Reserve Police Forces Elite Cobra Unit, special forces police who were supposed to be well equipped to tackle the Maoist fighters known as Naxal. According to the Home Ministry, the Maoists are now present in 20 of India's 28 states and have thousands of fighters. The chief of anti-Maoist operations in the region described how the rebels used rocket launchers and hand grenades against the security forces. So your, your armed police force is, you know, carrying out counter-terrorism investigations and, and proactive work in, in keeping this insurgency at bay. It's carrying out um, riot control and then later also kind of embrace this sort of natural disasters emergency management type role which was big became a massive part of your policing life in this new era in terms of if we just fast forward the clock to 2015 when you were part of the recovery effort for this huge earthquake in Nepal and Kathmandu the ground is shaking what about the ground opens up 
the moving mountainside was a warning of much worse to come. These Everest mountaineers sense something is wrong. And then, in a few terrifying seconds, they realize. Langtang is reckoned to be one of the most beautiful valleys in the Himalayas. But it is now a scene of almost indescribable horror. Uh, yes, Oliver, um, you know, when the Mars came into the main political stream in 2005, uh, so there was a big question mark on the fate and future of armed police force. So the, some of the people they said, including the Maoist, when they came to the main political stream, they said that, okay, the job of APF is done. Uh, so we don't need APF anymore. The APF has to be dissolved, you know? Yeah. And all of a sudden, yeah, all of a sudden, you know, I, I, I thought, okay, my job is gone. I'm done. I'm fired, you know? I mean, all the people who are in the armed police force. So somehow we have to find, uh, you know, the, the new engagement. Uh, so the, one of the engagement that, I mean, there were 12 engagement after that, but two main engagement, I would say, after that, after signing the peace, uh, uh, comprehensive agreement, you know, with the government, uh, the two main tasks that armed police force took was border security uh, and the emergency management. And that's how the whole resources and the whole uh, priority of the armed police force were actually shifted, uh, you know, from the combat role uh, to the role of uh, border security and the emergency management. Uh, mm -hmm. And down the line, when I got my own promotion, uh, you know, we established uh, 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 emergency, uh, the disaster management training center. And luckily, I was the first commandant of the training center uh, where I was able to, uh, you know, train and uh, and graduate some of the finest officers, you know, and those were the officers who actually were engaged uh, during the time of uh, the massive earthquake in Nepal, which actually went on 25th April 2015, uh, and where I was heavily engaged in search and rescue operations, especially in the Kathmandu Valley, because I was the deputy metropolitan commander then. And, and that particular earthquake um, led to the, the tragic death of thousands of people, millions of people displaced, uh, and you and you in particular led numerous urban search and rescue operations in the Kathmandu Valley. There must have been some incredible challenges. There's one particular story that you reflect on um, when you evacuated a 16-year-old victim, Pemba Lama, alive from a collapsed structure, been entrapped for more than 120 hours. There are always many, many heartbreaking stories of, of loved ones that are lost through such huge events which are tragic. But there are glimmers of hope and happiness out of some of these instances, and that must have been a massive one for you personally. Uh, yes, Oliver, but that was not easy as well. Uh, you know, it was a massive earthquake where more than 9,000 people were killed. Uh, among them, 33% were, were, were minor and children, and more than 2 million people were displaced all over Nepal. Uh, and it was a massive earthquake of more than... Uh, 5.7 rectic scale, which actually, uh, you know, flattened uh, almost, uh, you know, the Kathmandu Valley. Uh, so, as I said before, I was uh, the, the deputy metropolitan commander and the commander for the whole search and rescue operations. Uh, uh, Nepal was not prepared for that kind of disaster at all. Uh, so, so we had a trained manpower, but we didn't have any uh, any resources, you know, to accomplish the search and rescue operations, especially when the multi-story buildings were collapsed just like a pancake. Uh, every day we would be receiving a numerous call uh, where they would be saying that, okay, we have an entrapped live person over here. And most of the time when we went over there, spent throughout the day and night, uh, we would just come out with the dead bodies and all. Uh, and especially, uh, you know, when uh, 
when you cross 72 hours of your search and rescue operations so by international standard it goes into the phase of recovery i mean you don't have any uh, you know any chances wherein you would recover or retrieve any alive person after 72 hours uh, so we were actually into into the initial stage of recovery phase where i was more involved in the debris collection and also clearing of the roads and the lifelines and all and all of a sudden uh, you know we got a call uh, that we might have a live victim under the rubble uh, in Gongabu. That's the main bus stop for the whole Kathmandu Valley. So I said, okay, hang on, I'm coming over there. So we went over there. We had a K9. Uh, actually, that, that team actually came from US, uh, from the Fairfax mm. County, where actually I'm living now. And I talked to the squad commander. I said, hey, commander, so what is the lead? Do you still believe the information given by K9 uh, is, is authentic and true? And he said, sir, sir, it's, it's, it's actually 50-50. It might be, it might not be. And and I reported to my own chain of command. And they said, okay, uh, don't waste your time. Okay, we need to address some other things. So I would rather recommend you to to to, to retrieve from there and to go somewhere else. Uh, but then I said, okay, I mean, even if I go to the different site, I have to do the same job. I mean, I mean, I mean, it's, it's just change of a site. So why not give uh, give a shot? Uh, so I convinced my own commander, and that's how you know, you know, and then and then and I, I tried to convince my own squad, uh, search and rescue, uh, you know, inspectors and all. I said that okay. Uh, so do you think that can you make it? And then one of the officers, which I mentioned in my uh, in my Netflix uh, uh, documentary, so he actually volunteered. So we went in through the foxhole, uh, and he could feel, you know, uh, the the leg of that victim, Mr. Pemba Lama, uh, which was, uh, you know, which was still you know, moving and all this kind of thing. Uh, so, and he said that, okay, sir, I don't promise, but he might be alive. The local army were searching the area today, merely clearing it out when they heard something. They dug down about uh, two to three meters and found a little tiny hole, uh, no bigger than half a meter by half a meter square. And inside was this teenage boy. Uh, so I said, okay, let's go ahead. And that's how we went for such an SP operation, which lasted for more than eight to nine hours. Uh, and at the end of the day, you know, it was a miracle. So we were able to retrieve him alive, you know, after 120 days. Uh, I'm sorry, 120 hours. So it was a big, big news, uh, you know, not only in Nepal, but also all over the world. This is the incredible miracle moment where a person has been pulled alive from the rubble after 120 hours in there. A 15-year-old boy has rescued. You can look at the cheers there going up. I've been with this rescue team since yesterday. This is the first time I've seen them smile. The atmosphere is electric. Uh, which, which, which actually uh, nudge the policymakers uh, to review uh, you know, the threshold of 72 hours, you know, uh, and after that, I think there was a lot of uh, review and retrospective meeting uh, that a person can be fine alive, uh, alive even after 72 hours. So that was one of the things that, that we actually, you know, accomplished uh, during that disaster, Oliver. It's, <clears throat> it's an incredible story. And the one thing that we talk about a lot in police investigations globally is that when you're dealing with a complex event, there are a number of conflicting priorities. Now, this was an event like nobody had ever seen before, an earthquake which had tragically flattened in some places wider villages outside of Kathmandu. As one of the management team in charge of the response to search and rescue and recovery, how did you prioritise what was important and how did you 
go through systematically each building that was down to see if you could find loved ones? What was the process you had to go through? Okay, the first thing, Oliver. Every morning we used to have a stand-up talks. Uh, you know, I mean, I used to I used to uh, rally all my officers, and the first thing that I used to say to them in my first morning briefing was. I don't want anyone to make their resume on dead bodies. Okay, don't come up to me and say, okay, we retrieved 10 dead bodies. I said, no, that is that is something which is unacceptable before some two hours, you know. All I need is 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 the 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 rescue of the live person. So that was the first priority for all of us, no matter what. I know we were down with the resources, uh, we didn't have enough manpower, you know, the, the people that we trained were actually uh, you know, uh, you know, decoupled to the to the various areas of Nepal uh, because we had very few officers who were actually trained on CSSR, collapse structure search and rescue. Uh, but I told them, so our priority is to save life, no matter what. You know, even if we enter into the fourth or fifth day, make sure that we keep priority extracting the live person. I think that was one of the things which actually motivated my own officers to go extra mile, you know. And then since my, my, my elder brother was in the military, so it, it and, and I, I served in the Royal Palace, so actually it gave me a very good uh, kind of a networking with the Royal, Royal Nepal as, uh, Army as well, because they had got better resources. You know, so I don't have to go through all those, uh, you know, procedural, uh, you know, the reporting and all. I could straight call the one of the the army officers, and I would say, hey, you know, uh, you know, this is Durga Kunwar. I need such and such resources over here because we believe that we have a live person over here. So that actually worked a lot for me. Uh, uh, and 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 I told my officers, you know, make sure uh, that you don't you don't you don't get relaxed until. Uh, you know, we enter into the day eight or day nine or day 10. So that was actually one of the things which motivated my own offices. And actually, I used to lead by front. You know, I mean, I do remember, you know, uh, I hardly used to sleep three to four hours for, for whole for whole about a month. You know, so they can see their commander is, 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 is going in and out, uh, you know, day in and day out. Uh, so so I was leading by example. Uh, and that was one of the motiv uh, you know, motivating factors for the officers as well. And uh, as, as you know, Oliver, it was a massive earthquake, you know, that, that actually happened once in your lifetime. So for me, I took it as an opportunity more than a challenge, you know. I mean, uh, none of the security forces all around the world have got the optimum resources. Everybody has to find, uh, you know, find and fight, you know, with the resource constraint, you know. So that's how your leadership quality comes into, into in hand. So I think that was one of the major, uh, you know, I would say, uh, impetus which actually helped me you know to 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 rescue you know mr pemba lama you know from the rubble of disaster you know from the yeah, jaws of death i would rather say that that was going to be my next question actually is because there are very few countries anywhere in the world that i think would be quite prepared for such an event how do you how do you tackle something that you're not prepared for that you haven't really trained for in any sort of meaningful way because it's not something you expect to happen and then sending in officers that have got little to no experience in such environments. How do you manage those key moments and stresses of trying to get everybody through something that no one really has any experience with dealing with? Is it is it reaching out to outside agencies and other countries who may have a little bit more experience? Does that help you? Is that one way of overcoming these traumatic issues? Uh, to be specific, uh, Oliver did not. Uh, I do remember, you know, we had a lot of... Uh... A lot of assistance from from uh, from different countries. I mean, uh, I could see uh, a lot of search and rescue teams from the different part of the country in the next 24 hours. 
uh, they were from Turkey, from China, from India, from US, from France, you name it. I mean, we had all the teams over there, but again, we had a cultural uh, problem. You know, some of them, they could not speak our own language. Uh, you know, some of them, uh, the, the, the equipment that they bought along with them were not compatible with the, with the system that, that we had over there, the electrical system, you know, uh, uh, you know, the and, and, and some of the team, you know, I mean, they were there, but they were not there with the right equipment. Uh, I believe, uh, Oliver, somehow, you know, when you have that movement of, uh, you know, where you have to do something, you know, some supernatural power or some basic instinct come naturally to you mm. you know that actually goes beyond your roles and responsibility you know uh, especially when you are in a situation where all the people are looking at you to save life you know so you cannot have any ultimate uh, you know objective or ultimate goal where you are called in or where you are expected to save a life i think that was one of the things which actually i told to my officers i told them okay most of the time, in most of the days, in whole of our career, you know, we were actually uh, more engaged, you know, protecting the, the 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 civilian population. The time has come to protect the life now. Mm. Okay, so you might have challenge. You know, you know, you might not get the resources. You know, you 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 know, you might have a lot of red tapism. You know, uh, you 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 might be fatigued. You know, you have to work. Uh, you know, twenty four seven, eighteen hours in a day. But remember, this is the time where you can prove yourself. You know, even if you save one life, you know, this is this is this would be the ultimate. You know, uh, you know, uh, gain for you to 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 get rejoiced in in, in your future. Uh, so. Although we are having a different, uh, you know, search and rescue squad for the different part of the countries, you know, they were actually relying on us to take a lead. Uh, so they had equipment, uh, you know, as I said before, and we had the skill. So that was the combination of skill and the equipment that actually uh, did a miracle, uh, especially uh, in the case of Fema Lama, you know, where uh, the K-9 team, the U.S. Fairfax uh, search and rescue team and our local skill that came together. Uh, and we were able to pull out, uh, you know, one of the greatest search and rescue operations in the entire modern history, uh, uh, you know, of, of, of these days, uh, Oliver. One of the greatest challenges during that event is obviously um, you have probably one of the most iconic natural landmarks in the world, that being Mount Everest, where thousands and thousands of tourists visit every year to try and just get to base camp. Some even get to the top of Mount Everest and achieve what can only be quite an incredible experience. During that period that you're responding to such a significant event, whilst you're managing issues locally, you've also got this extra dynamic of a number of tourists stranded at various different areas around Mount Everest, base camp, within villages. Um, there are outbursts of um, disorder between locals helping and having disagreements um, with those that had traveled to climb Mount Everest. What was the challenges in trying to navigate the different languages, the different cultures and getting people out of the Mount Everest area safely? Uh, yeah, that was that was one of the greatest challenge, Oliver. Initially, we were looking forward for uh, for uh, the a lot of search and rescue team from all around the world. You know, we wanted uh, people on the ground on foot, uh, you know, so that they can be helpful to retrieve uh, uh, the to retrieve the live people as much as we can. Uh, but as the day passes by, you know, uh, you know, uh, those those uh, those challenges were solved. But they also invited some other, uh, you know, kind of residual. Uh, uh, challenges as well you know as you said you know there was a kind of a cultural challenge the language problem 
uh, and also uh, the some of I would say some of the uh, the international uh, assistance team that actually came in, uh, they had their own priorities, uh, which might not align, uh, you know, with the priority of the local uh, government. Um, so, so we had a lot of conflicting issues as well. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the some of the team would 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 uh, would love or would prefer to work on their own, you know, without reporting to the uh, to the local authorities. Uh, uh, and uh, the people would complain, you know. I mean, they would say that you know their uh, their 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 uh, privacy has been infringed. Uh, uh, we don't understand the language why they are here. Like, if you have a squad from China or from Japan, they don't understand the language of each other, you know. So the the, yeah. the actual local people doesn't know what they are doing. I mean, why the heck they are mm -hmm. over here, uh, you know? So some of the time, he actually has to work as an interpreter as well. Uh, and we had a distinct. Uh, instruction from the uh, from the local authority that uh, we don't want to see any international search and rescue team leading the whole operations we want a local team uh, that should be leading and all those international agencies would be helping to you uh, if they are invited uh, for that purpose uh, uh, so having said that yeah there was a lot of complexities uh, especially when the government was pursuing the one door policy uh, the most of the international agencies were trying to go on their own uh, so that would actually add more problem than 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 uh, bringing a solution to us. Uh, and having said that, uh, that happens everywhere all around the world when you have any disaster of that of that magnitude and intensity. Uh, that is something that you have to walk through. Uh, I mean, uh, during those times, there is no two plus two four. Uh, you know, I mean, you have to manage the situation. Then you have to uh, you know you be focused on your objective. Uh, and also you have to make sure that you don't leave a bad impression to those uh, international search and rescue team because they have also come a long way to help us, right? Uh, so those are the different things uh, which as a commander you have to pay attention to. Uh, and wherever I have confronted with those kind of issues, which I did, I always try to negotiate with them and come to a common ground, uh, Oliver. One of the greatest challenges equally is dealing with your, your own emotions and and, and in the first episode of Protect and Serve on this podcast many months ago, we spoke to a gentleman called Wes Wong, who is the um, FBI's ground commander on September 11th. And he spoke about after being trapped in one of the towers once it collapsed and he got home after the incident and he had a chance to reflect and he understood the gravity of the situation that he had been involved in directly. Did you have a similar experience once that event was over? and you had done the best you could possibly do in recovering those that were alive and sadly those that had passed away was there a period of deep reflection for you understanding what you had been part of uh yes oliver uh you know uh there are numerous incidents uh you know i, I served in kosovo right after the conflict in sudan Darfur. it was also right after the conflict and in Liberia as well. So all those, uh, my stint with the UN peacekeeping mission was exactly in the post-conflict scenario. Uh, but if I have to choose, you know, one incident where actually I, I, I lament even this day, is a situation, uh, you know, when I was the commandant of uh, uh, the disaster management training school. Remember, I, I, I shared you before that I was the first commandant, and uh, and uh, there was no budget at all. You know, so there was. No, no manpower, there was no budget. Uh, they just gave me an order that you have to go to a certain place and you have to establish a raise or disaster management training center. So I had to build up from the scratch. And that training center was exactly, uh, you know, on the national highway, uh, which connects the Kathmandu Valley from the rest of the Nepal. Uh, 
So, and we used to have a lot of road traffic accident on that route every day. Uh, so one day we had a call uh, that one of the vehicle has met an accident. So it was early in the morning during the winter. So I went over there. I literally saw from my own naked eye that one of the driver, he had a head-on collision uh, with, the, uh, with the rear side of the other vehicle and he was compressed uh, between the bonnet and his, uh, 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 you know, the uh, uh, um, his seat. So I could I could feel that he was trying to take breath, and then uh, we were trying to break in the window with all the equipments and all. And by the time we were able to go in, he already died. Uh, so that was one of the turning point for my entire life. And then I said, no, I mean this is something that we, we could have prevented. Uh, and then I, I made a whole lot of a report. Uh, I went to my headquarters and I said to them, okay, we need something like the trauma center, you know, along the road or in the training center wherein we would be able to respond quickly and we can save life because these are the preventable life. Uh, but, you know, Nepal is a poor country and our police force was barely, you know, raised. So always, you know, when it comes, we have a very good policy, but it all stucks, you know, with the with the constraint of the finance. Uh so, so my department said that, okay, I mean, the policy is very good, but, you know, we don't have any resources at all. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I mean, then, then, then I had to find some other resources. So luckily, uh, you know, I went to the U.S. Embassy, uh, you know, I talked uh, to one of the officials and then I said, okay, yeah, this is something that we have to do immediately. Uh, uh, so we kicked in the project and now I have come to know after 10 years, you know, that training center has got a trauma center, uh, you know, with, uh, uh, you know, with the blood bank. Uh, and I was told that now uh, none of the victim who unfortunately meets the road traffic accident dies on the road. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Yeah. What an, so achie what, what an incredible achievement. Right. I mean, I had one official who actually came last month and we had a dinner together. And actually, he was the one who said to me, uh, Mr. Kunwar, do you remember, do you recall those days? You know, when you are fighting tooth and nails, you know, to establish one trauma center, you know, in your training center in Kreentar. I said, I, I do remember, sir, what happened with that. And he said that now we have a full-fledged trauma center with a medical officer over there with the blood bank. And uh, after its establishment, we have a data which proves that none of the uh, the victim who was entrapped in the road traffic accident has died after the armed police force rescuers had responded to the situation. I mean, what else? I mean, I mean, I mean, saving life is the biggest, uh, you know, biggest mm. asset, uh, you know, that 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 you can give, uh, you know, with any profession or any job, especially when you're a law enforcement officer, uh, you know. And I have, you know, the most of the people over here in the U.S., you know, they 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 ask me. I mean, I tell them, you know, the law enforcement officer is to protect, even if you have a criminal in front of you who is who is aiming a gun to kill you. You know, my job is not to not to kill him, but my job is to incapacitate him. You know, I mean, I mean, that's the job of the law enforcement officer. We, you need to protect life. You know, you're not supposed to take the life of any of the people. Uh, I mean, uh, there's a conflicted thing. The people say that unless, you know, why wouldn't you do that if there is an imminent threat to you or to the people who are under oath? I said, but still, the first job of the police is to de-escalate the situation. I mean, if you can do that, trust me, I mean, you can save life. It's an amazing way to finish that little segment. I think it's um, quite a humbling moment to understand the impact you've had um, from some of those decisions you made. And and importantly, if 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 anybody, any of our listeners want to to hear further about your your policing and management 
of that disaster. Obviously, you were quite recently famously and very humbly so in the recent Netflix release, Aftershock, Everston and Nepal Earthquake. But what I wanted to focus on now just very briefly then is your move into the United Nations peacekeeping missions. What was your transition like into what is a globally recognised organisation trying to do as much good as it possibly can right across the world? Uh, no, it does. Uh, the most of the people, you know, uh, the most of the officers who actually went with me, I mean, and, and you, you might have heard that notion as well. The most of the people, they prefer to say UN is a toothless institution. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, there is a lot of instance uh, like in, in, in Rwanda, in Haiti, uh, where the whole of the community were attacked by the uh, local militia and the UN did nothing. Uh, uh, when we pass that comment, we have to remember what is the UN mandate. Uh, we don't take side. The, the UN mission doesn't take side. You know, the best uh, uh, tool for any UN mission, especially when they go to the peacekeeping operation, is the neutrality. Once they lose the essence of or the sense of that neutrality, so they are taking side. So when you take side, you are no more UN. Uh, that happened to me as well in Darfur. Uh, we were supposed to protect the IDP camp, and the one IDP camp would be as big as whole New York City or San Francisco, trust me, or, or, or much bigger than London. Uh, and we were supposed to do, do the perimeter security. And trust me, Oliver, the most of the incident would happen, including rape, within the camp. Yeah. And we were not allowed to go into the camp. And wow. I had a lot of discussion with the operation chief. I said, so why are we here if we are not able to protect the women, children, you know who have been raped during the broad daylight, and we have all the information that it has it it it, it has committed over there. And uh, he would say the same thing, you know, because the UN once we go because that's one of the mandate that we are carrying, we have to be neutral. But he would say, make sure that you document all those things in black and white, and that's what we did. And remember, that is one of the reasons why today the president of Sudan, Mr. Al Bashir, is in the ICC court in Geneva. Now, have you, when we go back in, in, in retrospection, can you imagine a sitting president of any of the country would be dragged to ICC unless the UN had not documented all those atrocities in past 10 or 15 years since they were engaged in Darfur? No, literally no. You see, then I realized, you know, the, the power of neutrality is, is actually much bigger than what you, what you can ever comprehend. Uh, and also the UN gives you a lot of opportunity to work in the multi-ethnic culture. You know, you work with the different people coming from the different part of the world. They have a different mm. culture, different perspective, you know, different parts. And then you came into one bowl and then you do brainstorming and then you come out with such a good, you know, kind of a policy tactically, uh, you know, strategically. I mean, that was one of the opportunities where I actually learned, uh, you know, you know, how to work with the diverse culture and the diverse people. I mean, uh, yeah, UN mission is is you know you know the one of the things which I cherish most. Trust me, Oliver. And your United Nations work, outside of that, you've now relocated to the US. What's your um your post policing career look like now? What's your main focus and interest outside of police work? Uh, you know, Oliver, uh, when I when I left Nepal in the July thirty first, two thousand fifteen, I remember that. Uh, the, one of the reasons why I left my job, I resigned, was also because of the post-disaster, uh, you know, stress that I went through. 
because I was only able to save one life, you know, but there were a lot of incidents where I was only able to retrieve the dead bodies, you know, so I, I used to feel somewhere down the line, I'm responsible for their death, you know, I don't know, uh, that, that may be too sentimental to say, uh, but seeing being a commander, you know, whenever I used to retrieve a dead body, I used to feel, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, um, accountability to myself as well. Uh, so when I came to US, I told to my wife and my family, the least job I would be ever doing is a law enforcement job. Uh, you know, it looks very rosy, uh, you know, for a lot of people, uh, but it's not. Uh, when, when uh, you know, you are supposed to wear that uniform, you have to earn the public faith, and you should be as best as you can. And there is no room for any dishonesty. Uh, you know, you can't use excessive use of force. You have to uphold the honor of the institution that you represent is a huge task. Uh, so the transition phase from Nepal to U.S. and shedding of my uniform uh, was not easy at all. Uh, but somehow, uh, you know, I have, uh, you know, uh, accustomed to my civilian life now. You know, you know, I feel proud what I have done uh, in last those twenty years. Uh, and uh, uh, and now you see why we are here today is because of the job that I did uh, in Nepal. Uh, I would not have been over here talking to you, you know, uh, over the Zoom meeting. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so I'm. I must say, you know, actually, I'm. I'm. I'm enriching on the dividend of what I invested my young days being a law law enforcement officer, Oliver. Well, the, the main theme of our podcast in this first series of recordings is um, ordinary people doing extraordinary work, and uh, there is no doubt in my mind that you meet that saying in absolute bucket loads because of what you've achieved throughout what is quite an incredible career. I wanted to finish by asking you a question. What is, um, what are your greatest learnings from policing? Oliver, if there is anything that you can do uh, in your entire life, no matter in which profession you are, uh, I have respect to all the all the profession, uh, undoubtedly, uh, but I don't think there is any other profession in the entire world other than law enforcement uh, agency that gives you a lot of, uh, uh, you know, satisfaction at the end of the day. You know, everybody retires. Uh, nobody's young forever. Uh, uh, everybody pursues their own interests, uh, and some of those interests, some of the people, they transfer into their profession. But uh, while going back, I don't have any and he, and he repent, uh, I was a law enforcement officer. I think I chose the right path. Uh, although now, um, you know, I'm having a tough time to make a smooth transition to my to my new life. Uh, but when I weigh those both situations, I think I have done my part uh, being a police officer. So I'm proud of it. Uh, and I encourage all the young people, all the young officers, at least once, uh, you know, you know, they should serve the community. Uh, and what the better way it would be being a law enforcement officer. Uh, you know, the one thing that I have been vying for is uh, in most of the countries, you know, uh, you have to serve the military mandatory, uh, including uh, uh, the Israel and some of the countries. So why not we have a policy in, in, in almost all the countries where uh, the young people also serve law enforcement agency at least for a year? 
you know, as a voluntary service, you know, that will actually uh, give them a lot of opportunity to understand, uh, you know, what the law enforcement job is. It looks rosy from outside, as I said before, but actually it is not. It, it, it demands a lot of things from you. Uh, and you don't know how much stress your family has to go through and your kids as well. So that is something uh, which people cannot understand unless they are put into the shoes of law enforcement job. Uh, that empathy feeling, you know, so the, those feelings can only be bought not by books or by sharing experience like me. Uh, I would rather encourage that uh, that the, 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 the most of the country, they should come with a policy or regulations where uh, the fresh graduate, you know, can voluntarily serve, uh, you know, any of the law enforcement agencies, you know, for the betterment of their society. Well, Durga, it's it's been quite a an incredible hour and 20 minutes of conversation. I've had the privilege of speaking to countless law enforcement professionals from counterterrorism experts to detectives to general duties patrol officers and and often we feel that sometimes you know policing happens in the streets of London it happens on the streets of Melbourne Sydney or in downtown Los Angeles but quite incredibly what we forget is some of the most incredible moments in policing happen in other places, such as Nepal and such as some of the stories that you've recalled to us this evening and this afternoon as, as the time is over in the United States. So on behalf of my colleagues and I, thank you for your service. Thank you for sharing some of your experience, experiences with us this evening. And uh, we wish you all the very best in your post-policing career and we're incredibly honored to have had the opportunity to speak with you this evening thank you oliver i really appreciate for for giving me this time to speak with you and through you uh, to share all my feelings and experiences i mean i would not had got the better uh, you know platform uh, other than you and your entire crew uh, you know where i was able to share my candid feelings i mean uh, at none of the point or none of the time i really felt that i'm i'm on record or, or on air uh, so thank you so much for giving me that uh, that ambience uh, and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much again, Oliver. Amazing. Thank you very much, Durga. Thank you. Thank you. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley. Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. <laughs>